Sometimes all you need is a whisper. A whisper to stir your heart, a whisper to awaken you to the calling in front of you, a whisper to pull your eyes to the horizon in that larger story you wanna live in. Sometimes all you need is a whisper, and a good teacher, a classroom teacher knows this. When the noise is off the charts, when there's just a hubbub of sound, they don't raise the volume, they don't shout into that, they whisper. Sometimes all you need is a whisper. This last Sunday was Remembrance Sunday, and in this sanctuary, we gathered ourselves into that vulnerable place of remembering those we loved who were no longer with us. We named and remembered the love we held. We named people and hopes and pets and dreams that had been lost in this past year. We ended that service by calling to mind the values of those we loved and had lost. And we committed ourselves to living those values ever more deeply in our own lives, to live them out loud, to live them boldly. I will tell you, that service, the music, the ritual, all of you gathered here together, it brought me to tears, and I know there were tears in many of your eyes as well. And as we approach the inauguration, I wanna to say to you that one of the losses that was not publicly named last Sunday, but many of you named it as you came through the receiving line and spoke with me afterwards, it is the deep grief you are experiencing over this festering infection of racism and misogyny and anti-immigrant sentiment that has been bubbling these past years. And many of us are now feeling all of that. And in addition to that, it is being blended with obfuscation and outright lies and disregard for the well-being of humans, for the well-being of the most vulnerable around us. It's an intense time. And we need to remember the whispers of our ancestors. Last Sunday, I thought of the music that Anne Reed wrote for our 150th celebration. It's become a touchstone for me, I know for many of us, this song she wrote called We Will. It's a long road we've set our feet upon, she sings. And with loving hearts, we walk on. All the souls who came before us are standing here you can hear them whisper low, we will walk with you, we will walk on. Sometimes all you need, friends, is a whisper. To start the revolution in your heart, a low whisper to bring to mind those beloveds who can give us the moral courage to rise and meet this moment. To rise and meet the fear, yes, the authoritarianism, yes, but the opportunity, Yes, for our values to take root like never before. And then there was Jen Crow's sermon with her image of ancestors speaking softly to us last Sunday, saying to us, I need you now to be my hands. I need you now to care with your hands like I cared for you with my hands. And that made me think of so many deceased, beloved members of this church, so many, but particularly it made me think of Mary Jerf, of blessed memory. Mary who embodied a love beyond belief. Mary who practiced a hospitality that was off the charts. Mary who could be feisty, yeah, and opinionated, and call you out. <laughs> 
Mary who radiated love and inclusion. In the first weeks of Jen's ministry here, Jen Crow met Mary right here in the front of the sanctuary, their first meeting, and Mary placed her hands, you, some of you know the story, Mary placed her cupped hands on Jen Crow's cheeks and leaned in and touched her forehead to Jen's forehead and whispered, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We have been waiting for you. So on Sunday, I was thinking about the hands and the voices and the bodies of our ancestors and how those same ancestors are whispering to us now about how to meet this moment. This moment that is not a drill. This moment when we must stand firm against the forces that would diminish life. This moment when we must seek to love again and again and again the hell out of this world. This moment when legislation and resolutions are being proposed at the federal and the state level to strip healthcare subsidies from children and women and families and replace it with nothing. This moment when lives are at stake. So how do our ancestors speak to us in this moment when immigrants are being vilified and the president-elect has signaled that in the first months of his term, he would like to immediately deport two to three million people? And let me tell you this, the Obama administration is no saint in this department. They were stymied in their efforts to create comprehensive immigration reform, but they deported two and a half million people over the eight years of the Obama administration. And so friends, the only way, the only way you could deport two to three million people, primarily people of color, is if the police were to become an arm and a tool of the federal government. And if war essentially were to be declared on cities like Minneapolis, cities that function as sanctuary cities where the local police do not enforce federal immigration law because it makes us all safer. And I'll explain what I mean. Betsy Hodges has said this practice will continue, that Minneapolis will be a sanctuary city, that the police will not enforce federal immigration laws because it makes us safer. Betsy Hodges has said this, witnesses and victims of crimes won't come forward if they think our police officers will question or detain them about their immigration status. This ordinance that the city has in place has helped us solve crimes, she says, and has kept communities safe. However, as I'm sure you know, the president-elect has promised to cut all federal grants and funding to cities that have such ordinances. This is the moment that we live in. So in this moment, I've been thinking about our ancestors, what they experienced in their lives and what they are whispering to us right now. What I know is that Mary Jerf and so many others that we hold in our hearts, they, in their very being, offered a kind of living sanctuary, right? Think of Mary, those of you who knew Mary or someone of beloved memory, and I'm, I'm thinking of Mary right now. She offered this, she would grab your hands and be like, hello, it is so good to see you. And she would hug you, and she would hold you, and she would be with you. It was a remarkable experience. And I experienced her, I know many of you did, as this place of refuge, this place that was a safe harbor, 
this shelter. So I've been thinking about sanctuary and what it means for us individually and collectively, what it means to be a living, breathing sanctuary in the coming months and years. What does it mean in our actions and in our words, in our faith communities, to be a living sanctuary, a place that offers real time through our presence, maybe in our building, safety to those who are feeling threatened, those who are vulnerable, those perhaps who are Muslim or Jewish, those who are dark-skinned, those who are immigrants, those who are women, those who are transgender or gay, lesbian, bisexual. What does it mean to offer sanctuary to those who felt particularly targeted in this presidential campaign and still feel that now perhaps even more acutely? And let's be real, there are people in this congregation who feel vulnerable for all of the reasons I've just mentioned. And I think the whispers we're hearing now, if we're listening, they are calling us to be a living sanctuary, a place of resistance and hope as we build a world together where no one is left out or left behind, where no one is disposable. Sanctuary is an ancient idea. When the Israelites left bondage and slavery in Egypt, they escaped from Pharaoh and they were on their way to the promised land. There were people there, of course, it was an empty land, but they were keenly aware of how they had been treated, what it felt like to be treated poorly. And so they had this commitment to welcome strangers and foreigners and offer hospitality. In this ancient story, one of the ways that commitment shows up is that before the Israelites enter into this promised land, after wandering for 40 years, God instructs them to build cities of refuge. In other words, after they arrive in this land, they are told, you must build sanctuary cities, ref cities of refuge, cities to harbor those who are in danger, whose lives are threatened, those who are vulnerable. Since biblical times to this present moment, there have been sanctuary cities and more often sanctuary churches, places where the secular authority is trumped by the religious authority, the immoral, the moral authority of the spiritual institution. So what I know is this, Mary Jerf and so many others who whisper to us now across time and space, they held sanctuary values because this church holds sanctuary values, those values that call us to justice and compassion, working fiercely for those values even as we hold the worth of those we disagree with. And those values are being activated once again. Since the post-election sermon that I shared with you all, a team of church members has come together. They have been working with Isaiah, a local organization comprised of 100 congregations in Minnesota. And they've been meeting, this team has been meeting to explore what does it mean to be a sanctuary and resistance church. And this movement, it's a nonpartisan interfaith effort that is a response to this growing climate of disregard for human rights. Part of this work has been some excavation of our history and they've unearthed some very powerful history about this church's role in the sanctuary movement in the 1980s. We were active in that movement. We provided safe haven for Central American refugees seeking protection from conflict in their home countries. 
This movement in the 80s grew out of a response to the Reagan-era immigration policies, which made political asylum difficult, if not impossible, for many of the Central American men and women leaving those countries. And if they were to arrive and receive asylum, they would be able to expose and talk about the ongoing covert and, mil and overt military actions of the United States in those countries. In 1984, we voted to become an officially sanctioned and public sanctuary church. This was under the leadership of Reverend John Cummins. Some of you were here during that time, I know. We harbored a young Guatemalan couple, Jenny and Jorge. They were here from October of 84 until February of 85. Two days after Jenny and Jorge left First Universalist, Marlon Machado, a 22-year-old Salvadoran church activist, was received into sanctuary here and stayed until July of 1985. First Universalist members provided support for Marlon Machado and the sanctuary movement in many ways. They raised awareness about the United States government and their policy around political asylum. They talked about the plight of these Central American refugees who often were sent back to their home countries and then killed. What I'm telling you is we have offered literal sanctuary before and we might be called on to do it again. But it's important to remember in the context of this conversation that sanctuary is not just about a building and housing people in a building. Sanctuary, being a living sanctuary, it's a set of practices. It is your faith lived out loud. As Patrick said in his call to worship, sanctuary can be about welcoming in those parts of yourself you have cast out. It can be welcoming home, giving refuge or a safe harbor to the parts of yourself that you cannot bear. So this team of congregants has held a broad definition of sanctuary, while being clear at the same time that our faith calls us to do whatever it takes to resist hate and unjust laws that harm people and families. The hope is that this church will be a location of resistance and action for the community, a place to organize and mobilize a place where we might educate ourselves about immigrant rights and reform, and if need be, a place that might actually house people. If we decide to harbor undocumented or targeted people at First Universalist, we see it as a way to further our commitment to racial justice and better understand the systems that oppress people. Now I imagine you're feeling a lot in this moment. I've talked to some of you and some of you are so clear in your moral commitment to being a sanctuary church, like housing people here, that you are ready to do it tomorrow, yesterday, you know, like you're, you're ready to go. And I imagine there's some in the sanctuary that have a lot of questions, like legally, like what does it mean? Like what's the liability for the church if we have people in the building? Or I'm not clear what this is about. And so I wanna honor all of what I imagine is in this space, the questions, the excitement, the confusion, the anxiety, and to tell you you're not alone in that, and to tell you this is a moment to begin practicing sanctuary, being living sanctuaries with one another as we hold all of that. And I invite you to meet after the service with our sanctuary and resistance team. They'll be downstairs, right by the library on those couches. They can tell you the work they've done. You can ask your questions. You can engage in this conversation. They want to talk with you as we live more deeply into our faith in this moment, this moment that is not a drill. 
And on this Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, I hear the whispers of Dr. King as well as he calls us to move beyond a conditional faith. And friends, I think sometimes this is where Unitarian Universalists, probably all people of faith get stuck. We get stuck in the conditional faith. And so I wanna read a little bit of this sermon from Dr. King where he takes apart this idea of a conditional faith and the potential travesties of a conditional faith and call us to truly live our faith. These are the words of Dr. King. He says, the if faith works like this. If all goes well, if life is hopeful and prosperous and happy, if I don't have to be arrested or go to jail, if I don't have to face the agonies or burdens of life, if I'm not ever called bad names or feel uncomfortable because of taking a stand that I feel I must take, if none of these things happen, then I'll have faith. I'll have faith in life, I'll have faith in the goodness of God, I'll have faith, says Dr. King. That's the if faith. If these things, then I'll have faith. And he says, you know, a lot of people have the if faith. You know, if things are going well, then I'll do the right thing. He goes on to say, there is a though faith, though. And the though faith says, though things go wrong, Though we don't have all the answers, though evil is temporarily triumphant, though sickness comes, though hardship is real, nevertheless, I'm gonna believe and act anyway, and I'm gonna have faith anyway. He preached this sermon in 1967. And he went on to say, talking about his faith and what it meant to be alive and to be clear about your convictions and your core values and principles. He went on to say, you ought to discover some principle, some great faith that grips you so much that you will never give it up, that cannot even live in that if faith category, something that grabs a hold of your soul. You may be 38 years old as I happen to be, says Dr. King, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls upon you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause, and you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job or you're afraid that you will be criticized or that you will lose your popularity and so you refuse to take a stand. Now understand this in the context of Dr. King's life. He is facing extraordinary pressure at this point in time, not only for his work around race, but for his work around poverty and workers' rights, his outspoken criticism of the Vietnam War. He is under a ton of pressure. So hear those words in that context where he is saying, I'm not afraid to die for my faith. I'm not afraid to die so that we can be, all of us, liberated from a system that oppresses so many of us. And so he closes this section, he does not mince words because he has experienced what it means to live that deep of a faith. He says, well, you might be 38 and this opportunity comes in front of you and you don't do it because you're afraid of losing your job or being critiqued or criticized or whatever it is. And he says, well, you may go on and live until you're 90 
but you're just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. In other words, for us, church, this morning in this moment we're living in, though it might be tough, though it might stir up anxiety, though it might be challenging, we are called to be a living sanctuary congregation. Not, if this is easy, we'll be a living sanctuary congregation. Not, if the rest of the community supports this, we'll be a living sanctuary congregation. Sometimes, all you need is a whisper. And we have what we need right here to be a living sanctuary, to let our presence, our voices, our space be a sanctuary, a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place of goodness and grace, of courage and compassion, of fierce love and deep resistance. The ancestors are calling. Our city, our state, this country needs our moral courage. May we keep our eyes on the prize and hold on. May we be a living sanctuary. May it be so, and amen.